Hi everyone and welcome to the Friday, October 22nd installment of the Silicon Insider, the only uncensored look at life and business in the Valley. My name is Mike Malone and I'm here with special contributor Scott Budman of NBC Bay Area. Our producer is Jordan Henderson, our East Coast correspondent is Bob Grove, and our host, as always, is the Silicon Valley Business Journal. Okay, Scott, this is, you know, you know it's fall when you have more stories than you have time for. Right. Things are waking up again. The atmospheric river is flowing over Silicon Valley. <laughs> We're getting rain, finally. It missed Sunnyvale completely, but apparently everybody else got a lot of rain. You'll get your time. You'll get oh, your rain. Oh, I'm sure yes. we will. Okay, so let's start out with uh, Bitcoin ETF. Uh, they started trading on Wall Street. Yeah. What does this give Bitcoin? It gives it a little more credibility. I mean, virtually any news that's not terribly negative about Bitcoin <laughs> yeah. seems to give it credibility and jack up the price. We've seen now an ETF, a way to trade Bitcoin. So without... this is a mutual uh, investment fund for it's Bitcoin. A, it's a fund, right, for yeah. Bitcoin. And now it itself, that fund, is trading on Wall Street. So, okay, a little bit more public ownership, a little bit more uh, public you know, visibility, sure. and that seems to bring credibility to Bitcoin. Okay, so is, is that credibility, you think, the cause of Bitcoin currently now, again, at its historic high? I do. Okay, so are you, do you sense, I mean, last time it did that, boom, it collapsed. Right. Do you see that coming? I've, I've seen a few commenters out there, you know, experts saying, yeah, maybe it's peaked again and it's going to drop. You know, even an ETF doesn't mean enough credibility where this is anything still, but a very speculative investment. Yeah. Uh, you know, Bitcoin again, as we've said, I think, started yeah. life as a currency and has now become a very, very speculative, sexy investment. And that's this, dangerous. This is like a war to get packs of cigarettes. So every time we talk about Bitcoin, we go, of course, this is a very risky investment. Right, because I feel as it someone... It can financially kill you. Yeah, well, I feel as someone who's been covering this for a long time and who get gets asked by a lot of young people, yeah. hey, can I buy Bitcoin? Should I be buying Bitcoin? And, you know, the easiest answer is no, it's very risky. And especially right now, at anything at all-time highs is risky. Okay, well, you've been covering it for longer than anybody just about. Do you feel more comfortable about it? I mean, you, you're announcing, yeah, this makes it seem a little more legitimate and all that. But in your own personal mind, do you f still still feel that it's too risky for somebody like you and I? Well, that's a very good question. It? And I think it's two questions. Am I more comfortable with it? I am. I think Bitcoin is here to stay. Well, I we're think crypto, yeah, we're crypto, accustomed to it. It's right. Crypto is going to stay. We'll still have the various you know, sundry coins coming to life and falling away and all that. But I think Bitcoin and largely... Uh, you know, cryptocurrencies, the blockchain, these are here to stay. But as an investment, you've seen it yourself. Within weeks, we see moves of thousands of dollars, sometimes $10,000 up yeah. and down. And that's really nothing for the faint of heart, nor is that really an investment that you want to say, ah, yeah. you know, investment with a capital I, something that I can base my future retirement on or save for a house or for a college right. fund. And, and people are doing that. There are now ETFs where you can store your money and have Bitcoin. But really, you need to track the price so frequently, as opposed to, say, a regular mutual fund of stocks, that it becomes uh, just such a blood pressure razor, it seems. Yeah, I'm not sure I'd want to spend every day checking this thing Right. in, in absolute terror every time I open up, you know, turn on my computer. 
So, I mean, is this still really a playground for really rich people that have disposable money that they can put into really high-risk ventures and people under 25 years old? I mean, <laughs> right. if, you, if you're 45 years old and you got a mortgage and, you know, Billy and Sissy both need braces, <laughs> this is probably not the kind of thing you want to get into, right? Yeah, someone who's pretty much in that wheelhouse right now and, <laughs> yeah. and buying braces. I mean, I would say correct. Uh, like any investment, you know, I would say make sure it's money you can afford to lose because you just don't know. Because you probably But will. with this, it's extra, extra speculative and extra dangerous because, again, you just don't know because we haven't figured out what Bitcoin is worth to society because yeah. it's not used as a currency. Right. right now, it's used as a kind of crazy investment vehicle, and that's extra risky. Except in El Salvador. <laughs> Where they're giving it a shot, yes. <laughs> <laughs> okay, uh, Apple had an event. How was it? It was smaller than usual. It's still virtual. And even more, perhaps, than the other events that have been You know, been they're virtual. putting 90,000 people in the Auburn football stadium. I know. Uh, I know. Why isn't Apple having its And they're filling events? movie theaters and yeah. concerts are happening. I guess Apple is just being extra careful. And as much as I enjoy the events, and you and I have talked about this through yeah. the years, I enjoy these events as events as, as much as anything as else. As a spectacle, yeah. I see journalists that I've made friends with from China, from the Middle East, from Europe, and it's always exciting to see them at these Apple events because Apple draws from all over the world. Yeah. And, uh, and that's a fun atmosphere. And what you lack from these virtual events, as anyone who's done a Zoom for the last 19, 20 months knows, is atmosphere. And that's why an event like this really comes away with, all right, they updated the MacBook Pro. You got some new uh, ear pods. And there's just not much else to say because there was no atmosphere. There was no electricity. You know, they didn't bring out a band at the end. Yeah, I mean, you always think of Steve coming out on stage at that last moment. Right. And, and, and even thing. with, uh, even post-Steve, just the idea, the electricity of this is live. Yeah. We've seen things go wrong because they can go wrong. We've also seen some incredible moments. Uh, we've had, you know, demonstrations through incredible sound systems of what it's going to be like to, let's say, play a video game on this or stream music on this. And that gets completely lost when I'm, you know, streaming this through a, an old <laughs> laptop. In your pajamas, yeah. <laughs> I mean, and so, yeah, it, it's, you miss the reason that I came to love the Apple events. Well, I, I have to admit, I, I was at the one where Steve returned where they introduced yes, the, the yes. uh, iMac. And they had a movie underneath, taped underneath your chair. I think it was Jurassic World or one of those. And it, they didn't tell anybody. So in the middle of it, it was sort of like being on Oprah, you know, where she gives out a car. It was like some actor gets on the stage and says, oh, by the way, our new film is underneath your chair and a scramble inside of Moscone. I mean, that was... That was about as high, high crazy and fun as I've ever been in Silicon Valley at an event. Right, you get a little taste of a concert at one. I remember when they came out with the iPod, Steve Jobs gave out CDs because at the time we were still playing <laughs> CDs. Um, I mean, it, it's an exciting, it's an exciting vibe and you yeah. just don't get that through a virtual event. So we can say, hey, there are some important MacBooks. Okay, so yeah, how is the MacBook Pro? I mean, it, it's fast. It's got some new chipsets in there. You can spend up to four thousand dollars on a laptop. Is it, is it you... like the iPad Pro? As expensive as hell. Um, so you more than the iPad. Yeah. So you salivate looking at it, but you're never going to buy it. You know, it's one of those things where 
you can either jump into the new thing because you want to jump into the new thing, or you can do what I do with the iPhone release. Wait a year and get there. Yeah, I just go yeah. back one and save a bunch of money and say, wow, this camera is even better. Than, you know. So, uh, but, but they're out there and they're much faster. Uh, the processing speed, the battery life is better, the charging is faster. All of the sort of incremental things that we've seen through the years and people were waiting for this one also because it's now got a 16-inch screen and that's bigger. Um, yeah. It's a device that is really for content creators. But Apple's not changing the world these days. I mean, it's kind of running the world these days it's when running it comes the to world. hardware. Yeah, no, absolutely. They won. Yeah. But it's sort of like they're they're playing the, the, the two-minute warning game. They're just, you know, playing defense. I, I don't see anything, you know, earth-shattering. We haven't seen, we, we got so accustomed to it and we've been expecting it, but it doesn't come. Yeah, I mean, the, the bang, 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 three things of changing the music world with the iPod. I mean, yeah. that revolutionized and changed everything. Some will say for the worse because of all the streaming. Yeah, but it created but, a trillion dollar market. Right, it, it just changed everything in music. Um, you know, the laptop world was already there, but certainly the iPhone changed it. And then, you know, the iMac with the idea of, yeah. hey, you can have a, you know, relatively inexpensive, small computer that's very powerful. And, uh, and right, you know, the watch didn't really move the world. I think wearables can be uh, ch a change for the better when it comes to healthcare and information that we get about ourselves. And that's kind of where they're starting to go with the ear pods. They say eventually they want to use those as sort of wearable devices, uh, assuming you don't lose them <laughs> as you walk around. Um, but even then, it's, it's incremental lately, the last several years. It's yeah, and, and the several is turning into 10. Um, I have to wonder, the, um, the watch was Steve's last project, in a sense, and, you know, he was always famous for looking at a design and going, not enough. It needs to be more. And I wonder if anybody at Apple still does that or has the power to do that, to say, no, we're swinging for the fences on this one. Go back to the lab and come up with something better. Perhaps. Or, I mean, now, you... or now it's just the, the bead counters are saying, okay, uh, that'll, that'll sell 150,000 units in the first month. So that's what we need. And, and that's something that every company does take into account. I mean, you have all oh, these, sure. you know, we're also at an age, uh, you but know, that means primacy as right. companies mature. Shareholder value and, and yeah. all that. And, and nobody has more shareholder value in this world than Apple right now. Right. But um, right. Where does that come in the pecking order? Where does innovation come when it comes to pleasing those shareholders and making sure that the sales are where they are by being, in some ways, and you almost hate to use this word with Apple, but safe. Safe, conservative. Predictable, yeah. Okay, uh, the Valley's currently longest running soap opera. <laughs> and you get to watch it every, it's like you, want, you get to watch all my children every morning. That's right, that's uh, right. The Elizabeth Holmes trial. <laughs> How did this week go? As the seasons change, right. as the pages fly off the calendar. Well, this week was, uh, much like the Apple event, a bit incremental. Um, although I think it's leading to something that, that, you know, as I watch the people who are savvy to trials, yeah. not so much to tech, but to trials, they seem to be starting to sit up in their seats. We've really established, A, that Elizabeth Holmes knew what was going on and was calling the shots. And that's very important for the prosecution. Um, one of the things that came up a lot, and it came up earlier when we talked about General James Mattis, who had testified earlier, but the idea that Theranos was telling investors, hey, the military is using our boxes. Yeah. Very crucial because, A, that never happened. Right. The military tested them but could not get the results back, much like 
why Safeway eventually like dropped else. the deal. Yeah, if you ever wanted to know what does Safeway and uh, the U.S. military have in common, we figured that <laughs> they out. Don't just, they, they didn't they get don't the, just acquisitions. Right. Yeah. Um, so the uh, the <clears throat> idea that we may now get to those investors who were told, hey, the military loves us, Safeway loves us, and um, they were told that, obviously, they were lied to. So... So is this going to be now cameos by Hall of Fame figures? That's what we wonder. And the last couple of days, the name Rupert Murdoch has been invoked in court, um, possibly because he was the largest individual investor in Theranos, um, but also maybe because he's on his way. Who knows? I mean, he's 90 years old. Uh, could he show up to downtown San Jose to testify? Okay, now this, this is starting to get to me because it looks like the median age of investors in Theranos now you could say, well, they're old guys. They don't, you know, they want to live forever. Uh, they want the best medicine. But on the other hand, it almost looks like she was preying on old men, old successful men who were not technologists. I mean, look at the people coming through Kissinger, Mattis. You expect Mattis to know a little bit, but not that much. Murdoch, the late George Schultz, the, George Schultz. Right, they all fit that profile and. Um, older men, older white men in power who have some money and perhaps just as important influence. Um, it but kind of makes them look tragic too. It, I it, have to admit, it does. George Schultz. I interviewed Schultz, you know, a couple times uh, for TV and all. I thought he was a great man. You know, I mean, he was dignified, he was sincere, and all of that. And to see guys like that get taken, right bugs me and I, I wonder if it, if it bothers the jury as well well that obviously I don't know but you can't miss the pattern here of who she was swaying not only because they fit that type but also what they were not they were not involved in healthcare. they were not involved in biotech or any sort of tech right. uh, and so the usual sort of check and balance that you want a board of directors to provide was not there yeah. uh, these were clearly yes men and I, you know, definitely all men, yeah. and who were there to be swayed and give money, but not to check and say... They were letterhead. Yeah, names. that's a good way of putting it. And even when Mattis was on the stand, the cross-examination seemed all too easy. You know, did you know what was going on in the lab? No, I wasn't there to know what was going on in the lab. And that really brought home, you know, a pretty big point to, to some of us. Yeah, and you get the feeling if he had been 50 madman Mattis would have, Mad Dog Mattis, would have been looking at stuff. You get the feeling if at 45, George Schultz had been asked to sit on the board, he'd be asking a lot of questions. But you know what? Even some of the venture capitalists who are paid, paid well to ask questions, didn't ask enough questions. You know, I'm thinking yeah. of Tim Draper, who famously, uh, you know, defended Holmes until the bitter end and even passed. And I get it. It was exciting potential. Sure. But at some point, you know, you're taking investor money on something that, you know, according to the prosecution, you know does not work. And that's why we're in court. You know, there's a there's a legendary story that David Packard was asked to sit on the board of a biotech company. And he said, okay, when's the, when's the first meeting, board meeting? And they gave him a date. And he, or, he had some of his people go out and get like 25 books on bioengineering and he read them all, took notes, and he went into that first board meeting and he started asking questions. And the chairman and the, uh, the CEO of the company, I th think it was Genentech, 
um, had to go out to the lab and bring people in to answer Packard's questions. Now that's the kind of senior successful person you want to have on the board, but that's a guy that was still young enough to be asking those questions and technologically astute enough to know what to ask. Well, and, and good for all, I mean, you're talking about perhaps the biggest Bay Area biotech success story in history. Yeah. So good for them for bringing on David Packard, good for David Packard for being David Packard and doing all that research and scholarship, which clearly we didn't have yeah. when it came to Theranos. Uh, what's coming up next week? Um, you know, it's funny. We you haven't, said something big is coming. Uh, the, the speculation is that we may start to hear from investors. You know, we really haven't. Mattis was there as sort of a board member. Yeah. He did invest $85,000 of his own money. But, you know, compared to what the Murdochs... Change, exactly. Yeah. And and it would be... It seems like we've now set the table for some of those investors to come in and say, yeah, I was told this, but it turned out to be that. So we'll see. Okay, so who do you think it's going to be? Who are the biggest investors in Theranos? You know, the two biggest... I mean, the Walton family put in the most money, but that's, mm -hmm. as, a, as a group, the biggest individual investor was Murdoch. Okay. Uh, definitely. And then you had some Silicon Valley VCs. You know, you had the Tim Draper. I want to hear from... I want to hear from Draper. Yeah, because you know he, he was the one that was willing to go on the record as this ship was sinking, saying, "No, I still believe in this." Yeah, and so he'll make a very interesting witness if indeed he's called, um, because not only was he a big investor, but also a big cheerleader for the company uh, again until the bitter end. I wonder if they'll ask him what damage it did to Draper Jervison. It's hard to say. Um, it's very hard to say because were any of these investors damaged because. Again, the, the culture of investment and tech is, hey, sometimes you swing and miss. Well, and yeah, you it didn't on. wreck any funds, but you know, you'd have to have second thoughts of putting money into a fund, you know, backed by a company that made it made this dumb a decision. Well, and I have a feeling that's why most of the VCs are not talking right now. Yeah, I mean, I'm hearing from them saying, I don't want to talk about this. Yeah, because you got to go out and build that next fund. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Uh, heard from Grove. He's asking about the phone war. He's saying, is it the is the phone war? Is it really a phone war, or is it a chip and software war? And if it's a chip war, you know, we have a lot of chip problems right now. We have supply chain problems. We have a lack of fab. We have Taiwan. Uh, who comes out ahead on this? I mean, Apple has an advantage because they have an integrated ecosystem. I mean, they're making their own chips now, but they're doing it through foundries which are also vulnerable. I mean, Google seems to be staying away from that kind of vertical integration, but does that leave them behind? Because they're gonna be last on the on the list of shipments for chips. And where's Qualcomm? Are they, he, he, he says, he thinks the clear loser is Qualcomm in this war. Well, this is interesting, because if you're talking about a phone war, I wouldn't say it's Google versus Apple. I would still say you have to be broader than that and say Android versus Apple. And yeah. the big flag bearer for Android is not Google, it's Samsung. Right. They make the best Android phones, they make the best selling Android phones. And really, I mean, I'm, I'm impressed every time a new Samsung phone comes out. Yes. I'm not a big fan of the fold-up kind of stuff. But Well, I mean, they take risks. Right, they take risks. I mean, risks. they occasionally set them on fire, but... Well, yeah. But they have a lot of money and obviously a great research uh, team and great products. And Samsung phones are terrific phones. Yeah. And that's what I always recommend when and someone says, I want an Android. And that part of them is a valley company. Right. But hey, Google owns Android. And so every time you buy an Android phone, you know, cha-ching for Google. 
I mean, right. There are few things we do in this life that doesn't ching for Google, right? I mean, I mean, but if you think about it, if you think of the of the phone business as being a component business, and we're having trouble with certain components right now, who who has the advantage? Well, Apple does because it's building its own chips. And where's it building them? I don't know. I don't know either. <laughs> Far I mean, away, I assume. Yeah, or are they make it up in Taiwan. I mean, well, there are foundries where are they, they using build the chip. A, yeah. you know TSMC like everybody else. They might, and at some point we're going to hear. I assume if this if this uh, chip. But look, you know the chip shortage is the headline. But if right. you read far enough, Apple is not only cranking out devices, but they're shipping on time. Samsung came out with new phones a couple weeks ago. They're shipping on time. Google, the day after Apple, came out with new phones with chips shipping on time. Right. Tesla shipped a record number of cars yesterday. We got their earning report on time. So we keep hearing bad news from, let's say, Ford. Yeah. But everybody else seems to be getting the chips they need, at least for now. And that leaves me to wonder just what you asked. Where are all these chips coming from? Well, you don't necessarily have a supply chain problem in semiconductors because you can, you can put a year's production on a rented 747 and fly it. You know, it's not like you have quarter panels for F-150s and that's and that sort of thing and, and wonder bread, you know, by the tens of millions of loaves. So that may not be a strictly speaking a problem, but I am worried about production. And you know, the car companies are they last on the list? I mean, when you when you're shipping the the next, you know, round of production from your fab, you know, is the top of the list Apple and then Ford's down there at number 52? Maybe so. And maybe that's why it's doing it. Or maybe Ford is just going to a different place for its chips. I mean, Apple famously had a deal with Intel for a long time. Then they decided right. to do it on their own, which given the current chip climate would seem risky. I mean, Intel is a sure bet for making chips if yeah. there is one. But Apple seems to be doing just fine. I mean, um, but they're not flying Chinese jets over Albuquerque. That's why Intel, you know, is in pretty good shape. They are flying Chinese fighter planes over uh, TSMC. Yeah, so I, I don't know. I, you know, a phone war, it's still, I think, Android versus Apple. And so far, it hasn't been uh, knocked for a loop by the chip shortage, or else we'd all be waiting for our iPhone 13 or our new Samsung phones. Okay, so while you're sitting in a courtroom, are you following all this Facebook stuff? Yeah. Sometimes we have uh, breaks in the case, and I'll hop online and think this company still can't get out of its own way. Well, now they seem to be going on the counter offensive. Yeah. As you see, I saw a commercial. I just caught it the last couple of seconds of it, but they're they're running commercials now, advertisements, and they're they're sober. There's two women talking. There's one where some executive from the company says, you know, we uh, we really should be looking harder. At uh, what is it, 2:30? Right, section 2:30. Yeah, section 2:30, which it seems to be like they're shifting it all onto that. You know, we need to retain that, and we need to have some kind of instruction on what we need to do. I mean, it's a weird kind of passive aggressiveness in the marketplace well, in, look, in their in their promotion. Facebook is on a PR offensive. Yeah. And this we've seen when industries. You know, the thing that Facebook gets, I think, wrongly compared to, but compared to a lot is smoking, right? Yeah. A lot of people do it. We know it's bad for us. We're not going to stop, you know. And remember, back in the, I don't know, 70s or 80s, the cigarette industry went on the offensive, and all of a sudden you saw these beautiful people 
smoking. Yes. And I remember as a kid growing up, like, oh, so cool. if I smoke, will I look like that, you know, really good looking person? And it get makes the... me look better. Yeah. Um, you know, quickly found out, no, uh, it's not going to make me look better or whatever. But um, with Facebook, it, it's, it's, I don't know, I get the idea of stressing the positives. Hey, we're a social world. You want to be connected to your friends. Um, but the the negatives are what are making the headlines, and for them to come out and say yeah, we're really frustrated. The VP of Communications comes out and says there's more than 30 journalists right. combing through all this leaked material. Yeah, 30 plus journalists, and that plus is doing a lot of a lot of work. A lot in that of work. Sentence. A lot of work. Trust me on that. And again, to say hey, you're focusing on the bad. Well, yeah, because yeah. of January 6th, because of the 2016 election, right? And that's what. As journalists we do and so for but did they really think that saying oh a bunch of journalists are looking into these documents do they expect the general public to go oh poor Facebook you know my reaction was where the hell were those journalists the last 10 years but I mean those journalists were there the last 10 years anyone who tells me oh Facebook's bad hasn't been paying yeah, attention they're, they're to idiots. anything yeah. so the, the the work has been done the, the news is out there, and um, I get it. Facebook needs to be on the offensive, but not in attacking journalists. I mean, that's yeah. an old trope. I get it, whatever. But they need to not attack journalists. They need to attack the bad news by fixing it. Yeah, exactly. You, know, um, you don't need journalists. They don't, show, to... they don't seem to have any intention of fixing this stuff. You know, I'm It not, makes a lot of money. I'm not it's seeing any of this. Oh, we've decided that... You know, this was wrong. No, they're saying we decided to hold off wrecking the minds of teenage girls for six months. Well, we'll no, be the, back. The teenagers are right. The ten to yeah, the, the ten year olds. Yeah. No, the, the, for the teenage cutters, you know, and the, and the nine year olds. But they're not saying we're we're not never going to do this. Right. We're just going to lay low and come back. It's a tough position to be in because again, a wide open platform leads to everybody being on that platform, sure. and that's the problem. But um, it just seems weak to say, oh, my gosh, Facebook is in the crosshairs of journalists. Yeah. Oh, oh <laughs> you know, pearl clutching the pearls. I mean, you're in the crosshairs of journalists Innocent for a reason. Victims. Right. Um, and again, it's taking what, I don't know, President Trump used to say, oh, the journalists are unfairly targeting me. Well, come on, well, Facebook, do better than that. Yeah. Fix the problem so that every time I'm on Facebook, I'm not seeing something false about vaccine or about politics or something like that it's you know I, i'm on social media for news and i i don't want my news to be demonstratively false i want it to be informative so you think this campaign's going to work you think anyone's buying it it would be hugely and almost wonderfully ironic for those especially on the conservative side to say let's back up facebook because you're right the media is targeting them unfairly. That Let's all be, go on Facebook. That would be ironic. And this is on the very same week that Donald Trump has launched a, a social network. Social network, yes. Um, and uh, we'll see where that goes. Um, but, you know, look, the social network world is very interesting and changing, and it's up to the press to cover that. And the more you cover it, Let's be honest, the more bad news you find, especially with Facebook these days. And they're under the microscope, and they're going to be under for a while now. Yeah. Okay, uh, Bill Gates. We've, uh, <laughs> we've now learned that uh, 
he got warned by a whole bunch of people while he was at Microsoft to stop flirting with employees. You know, this is a personal opinion, but I'm amazed by how many billionaires are socially inept. You've been around a bunch of them, so have I. Why would a guy that's the richest man in the world feel the need to bug secretaries at the office? You know, it's not like you can't just walk out on the street and say, I'm available and have, you know, beautiful, sophisticated women from all around the world emailing them to get together. I mean, this is someone, look, more comfortable behind a keyboard than out on the street. Well, and so yes. that's how it works. Um, right. And, and it's really too bad that this is coming out because, again, he was in charge. He ran the company. He shouldn't have been inappropriate. Well, this is kind of like Dua de Seigneur, you know, I get my choice of the of the serfs, you know. Uh, well, if you're looking at your employees as serfs, then there's a problem to begin with, yes, right? Yes, exactly. So, yeah. Well, yeah. Okay. Uh, it's just, it's a weird, sad story. His spokesman says just recycled false rumors, uh, the usual anti-PR campaign, you know, but it's sad. I mean... Here's a guy now trying to go out there and save the world, and everybody's looking at him and going, oh, yeah, and you're a skirt chaser. Well, how reliable are you? How much trust can we put in, you know, your big social engineering plans? Okay, finally. Uh, oh, by the way, Grove commenting on it said, uh, oh, Jeff Bezos got accused by Congress of lying. Have you seen that? Oh, uh, with the search results thing? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, Grove wrote... That's uh, sort of dogged Amazon for a long time. Yeah. yeah. Well, Grove wrote, Jeff Bezos may need to go back into space to get away from this one. Well, this is a way that Amazon maybe made an executive change at a good time. Yeah. Because these things are going to come out, and it's someone, you know, with, with Andy Jassy. You can say, it's, it's, it's a new nice, Amazon. That's why and, I put them together, Bezos and Gates. You know, it's time to move the, found, the rich founder out because he's becoming troublesome. Hey, we are in a world... As of, you know, we work as public, Michael. Yeah. So talk about moving the founder out and moving forward. I never thought we'd see that day, but we work as a publicly traded company. That's all you need to know about a crazy founder being moved out of a way yeah. and a company somehow continuing on. Right, right. So there you go. And finally, a shout out to one of our listeners from the other side of the world, Amy Schultz. She's a former LinkedIn employee and is now the global head of talent acquisition at Canva, which is a graphics company in Melbourne, Australia. So hi, Amy. Uh, it's nice to have a listener uh, and to podium from where we sit today. Uh, that's it for now, folks. You can find us on the Silicon Valley Business Journal homepage, as well as on Spotify, Anchor, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, and YouTube. Have a great weekend. Stay dry. We'll see you next week. Bye-bye.